Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last time, Brandon Duke laid out some of the important groundwork for thinking through how a good and powerful God might have a world capable of experiencing immense amounts of evil and suffering. And that is certainly going on in our world from time to time, and for many of us right now, in the midst of this current pandemic, suffering in in the sense of isolation, in the sense of those who actually get sick, and economic loss, and just a lot of problems in our time. Uh, But this is, of course, nothing new. So the question is, why does God have the world be the way that we actually find it to be, if he's so good he doesn't want evil to proliferate and suffering to proliferate, and if he's so powerful that he could stop any of it from happening? This is a classic question, and it's very important, and Duke started answering and laying out the groundwork last time, but in our conversation today, we're going to delve further into the idea of what's called soul-making. It's a theodicy, a doctrine of explaining how God runs things, to explain why suffering like death, damage, decay, and deprivation, and also God's hiddenness are necessary conditions for a world where authentic moral decisions occur and human development becomes possible. So this is the conclusion of our conversation on Why God Allows Suffering. This is part two, episode 363 with Brandon Duke. Welcome back, Brandon. So glad to have you today. I'm so glad to be back. All right, let's move on to suffering then. How do we address this? What's a solution to the very felt experience of suffering in our world? Certainly. There's a trite answer that many Christians will offer, and they'll say, they'll say we're supposed to grow from, from our trials and our tribulations and from suffering. That's certainly true that there are experiences that we go through that help us grow and, and become more. But there's also things that are they are seemingly gratuitous. The the newborn baby that suffers and dies over the course of a couple of weeks, there's no way that for that baby, maybe the parents might learn something from it, from that horrible mm-hmm. tragedy, right. but the baby's not. So it's it's not enough, I don't think, to say all suffering is some kind of stick or carrot, either one to help us to help us grow. As an example of that, there's a quote from William Lane Craig that I like to point out. As an example of what's wrong, he says he thinks only in a world suffused with suffering can the optimal number of persons come to God and be saved. A world suffused with suffering, his assumption is that somehow like breaks us down or or like drives us to God. It's, it's almost like God's putting us in a cauldron so that we can then be spared from it. He can pull us back out. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think a loving God, no parent would do that. No parent would put their kid in a boiling bath just so that they could relieve them of the suffering when they take it out or take the child out. Hmm. So I'd actually like to say that that suffering is a side effect of soul-making conditions. Okay. That if we want real souls, authentic souls made, that there are some conditions that are just necessary. They're entailed. And God can't do it another way. It's like a logical necessity. Mm-hmm that God put us in a world where we could choose left and right and up and down. But the problem is that means you bump into stuff just by definition. And he's got to give us a chance to interact with each other. But by definition, if that uh, interaction is authentic, there's a chance at love and unlove both. 
let's go back to our pill. So I'd actually like to, if I can, argue that there are two considerations God has to make when designing and governing this world. There has to be this design, and then there has to be right governance, right? There's those two pieces. So I'd like to look at the design part first, because a lot of when we, when we talk about the problem of suffering, we're really taught saying, why make a world like this? Why make it where you can cut your finger or get crushed by a boulder or right. die from a virus? All these things that seem to be just fundamental to the, the way the world is. A lot of us would like to say, well, let's, let's start eliminating some of these. We don't really mean it this way, but these like mistakes that God made, like there's an atheist who says, you know, had I been around at the time of creation, I would have some pointers to give to God because <laughs> we're, we're all kind of have our complaints, right? Like, man, it'd be nice if I could eat all the cookies I want and not get heavy. You know, that'd be pretty cool to be trite or boy, it would be great if I didn't have to watch my loved ones age and die. That would be good. What I'd like to do is share something that I, I got from a Christian apologist named Max Baker Hitch. Max Baker Hitch. He's at Cambridge or Oxford, one of those <laughs> big time British schools. And he argues that there are four D's to the design of the universe that we all think we would like to remove, but that are crucial to soul making and even to having a world that like makes sense. So here's the four D's, death, decay, damage, and deprivation. And I'll quick define those. So death, we know what that is. It's, 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 you cease existing, right? Or at least uh, functioning like you normally would. Uh, we can all argue what the state of, of us after death is, but we all know what it is to die. We all decay. We age, right? Mm -hmm. As time goes on, I can't run as fast as I could 20 years ago. Um, I don't have as many hairs on my head, and the ones that I do are gray. We slowly we decay, all of us. The whole universe in some sense is, but certainly us persons. Uh, we experience damage, right? We can be hurt and we can hurt each other. And, you know, that's everything from emotional damage uh, to physical damage. Um, and then there's deprivation. We all go without things. We're thirsty. We're hungry. We're lonely. Um, you know, we, we, we want respect. We want um, hope. We want all these things that, that often we go without. And um, intuitively, you might say, well, look, um, I could at least take a couple of those out and things would be better. Yeah, let's just have everything without death. Yeah, let's go without death. So let's think about that. You'd still have decay. You'd still have damage and deprivation. So you would never die. But you'd be super decrepit. <laughs> <laughs> so decay, de decay would just get worse and worse and worse. I heard your nose never stops growing. Right. <laughs> and your ears. And, uh, and your ears, right? Yeah. So you'd have these like Dumbo ears and this <laughs> elephant truck right. nose. Right. What's wrong not with him? Oh, ideal. he's just 700 years old, you know? Right. Right. It's not ideal or a million years old. And the decay would continue. Mm. And so it damage. You could still be hurt. We could still harm each other. Um, you could chop off my arm and somehow I wouldn't die. But now I'd have to live with that, with that pain. I could be horribly maimed and, and there'd be no escape. And by the way, let's go to deprivation. You can imagine deprivation would still exist. So look, I think that's hell. Like that's horrible. That's eternal conscious torment. <laughs> is to experience decay, damage, deprivation to no end. So look, what does death do for us? It is an upper limit on human suffering. There, no one can suffer more than what one lifetime allows, thankfully. And torture is trying to break that system, right? Torture is trying to delay death as long as possible. And and God mercifully includes that in our world. And I would go back to the garden and, and he says, look, 
if you're going to choose this other tree and you're, you're going to know good and evil, I've got to put this limitation to protect right. you. Right. And the two are not exactly the same because it's only after they disobey that he casts mm-hmm. them out and uh, prevents their access to the tree of life, which mm-hmm. it says, lest they eat of it and live forever. Yeah, that was very much a conscious decision, like, all right, you're going to have to be mortal now. Yeah, God could foresee all of the bad that would come from immortal humans that are now empowered the way that he is. All right, what, what if we take away just deprivation? We don't get hangry. Do You don't, what, feel lonely anymore? How, how is that just not obviously a better world? Yeah, that sounds awfully good if my wife always loves me perfectly and I always have all my needs met. But what would have to happen in order for that world to be realized? What would have to happen for her, for me to never be deprived of friendship or love? Is God going to step in every time my wife thinks, boy, this guy's a jerk? Is God going to step in every time that I'm, I'm thirsty? He's going to remove the thirst. He's going to insert water in my mouth. There's something fundamentally good about for a short time going without and then being satisfied. There's something fundamentally good about being able to meet others' needs. I put it in selfish terms, but let's really talk about it as a Christian. What if if there was never someone in need that we could help? What if there was never someone that we could love and choose to? All of a sudden, you go back to the one of the necessary criteria for soul making, which is real free will, libertarian free will. God couldn't allow libertarian free will in a world without deprivation because Every time someone would make that false choice that would lead to deprivation, he'd have to intervene and stop them. So I think deprivation is is a fundamentally important and needful part of the creation. We're going to get to this this idea of that these four Ds and this design is temporary. It's for a period of time for soul making. And then say, well, then what could we imagine a time after that like? What's what do we imagine the kingdom to be like? What do we as people would say, what do they imagine heaven to be like? And most people's idea of heaven is heavily influenced by this idea of no more deprivation. But you see how thin that is when you imagine the person on the cloud with the harp with nothing to do all day, mm-hmm. right? They're bored. I'm not, I don't want to run down honoring God and singing his praises eternally. He's certainly worthy of that. But it seems like we're made for a lot more than just that, that there needs to be purpose, that we need to be intervening in each other's lives for good, that we, for even for our own good, that we continue to be challenged and, and to overcome. And, de- and if, you remo- if God removes all deprivation, if he doesn't give us an opportunity to meet our own needs or the needs of others, it's, it's not much of a world. Mm-hmm. Now, what about uh, the verse in Revelation 21.4? It says uh, there will be no mourning, nor crying, nor yep. pain anymore. Yep. Uh, and it also says, of course, uh, death will be no more in the same verse. Yep. So yep. Uh, how do you conceive of eternal life? Uh, if, you, if you knock out death, if you knock out uh, damage decay. and decay, you can still have deprivation. Yep. Being hungry, some people will call it pain. Depends on how hungry you are. You can imagine some kinds of deprivation people would think would be appropriate for that world for to For the come. kingdom age, yeah, you resurrected bet. existence. All right, so you could have no more damage in the sense of like, I don't know, a resurrected body that has a skin that is still able to be sensitive and stuff, but it's, it's a lot tougher. Sure. And uh, maybe like max out the like healing properties. Sure. And the immune system, right? Like we can imagine yeah. a way in which God would be able to figure this out to deal with damage and decay. A lot of the decay is just those little 
tips on our DNA that kind of yep. fray like the yep. plastic part at the end of a shoelace over time, right? Yeah. So what are we saying then as far as the eternal state? Like, is it a realistic yeah. idea or do you think it runs afoul? Yeah, let me, let me offer this as, as a way to frame that. Have you ever wondered how is it that there's not sin in the kingdom or is there not supposed to be? Like most people's idea of heaven, you and I have a, a sort of a different conception from most people, but they're, they're imagining a sinless state. And now how does that come to be? We ask a guy like William Lane Craig, and William Lane Craig says that God's going to remove people's ability to sin. He's just going to he's just going to intervene and prevent those people from. Basically, he's removing free will. William Lane Craig thinks that free will is this temporary thing, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I think the whole point of this is to find people that qualify to be worthy of citizenship in a kingdom where they could properly exercise free will soul making this this key developmental period that has these four d's and i want to get to the other two here in a minute but yes once that's over then some of the conditions can change and i haven't given it um as much thought as as i probably will about which of those conditions obviously death is no more and many kinds of suffering are no more and probably not decay anymore right we're, we're supposed to have these these permanent bodies this but some kinds of damage and deprivation might be good. Like I can imagine playing some tackle football. If there's no chance of, you know, being bruised or broken or something, there's something that's being taken out of that, right? Uh, that some of the value of the courage and, and the overcoming of, of obstacles, um, they're just not there. So, um, so I don't know as far as, I, as the kingdom, I, I still need to think about that. But I will yeah. say that let's keep going through this list because if you think about taking out any more, and by the way, all the combinations are bad. Take out one of them at a time, take out two of them at a time. You need the whole package in order for soul making to happen, I right. think. Right. But the objective in this present age compared to the objective in the age to come is different. Absolutely. Right? So, like, so the design um, is different. Right, right. So, like, yep. you have these four now to allow for people to choose God and, and to develop yep. and, and whatnot into the kinds of yep. people that would fit in in the age to come. But uh, in the age to come, you wouldn't need to necessarily have the same kind of uh, temptations or yep. you know, hurdles to get over. You could say soul making is finished. And so both soul God's made. design. Yeah, souls are made. <laughs> so, so God's design for, for, for the world that we occupy, for the arena that we're in, and his governance of it could be very different. All right, well, let's, let's move on to the next one. Okay, so let's talk about decay. Imagine you still have death, damage, deprivation, but no decay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you could still die, and you're probably going to die from damage, right? Because you're not going to age out and die. Look, decay is incredibly important because it also sets an upper limit to our suffering, right? It brings death. If you don't have decay, I can be terribly, terribly maimed, and nothing would ever finish me off unless someone actually did it, right? Someone have to do more damage to me. But what happens to us, thankfully, is our bodies decay. If I, I, I had an aunt who suffered terribly from MS, it was a great relief when her body finally decayed to such a point where she could be released from that suffering. It's an incredibly merciful thing that God does to, to bring about death when we are in a world full of damage and deprivation. And so I think both death and decay offer their God solution to put an upper limit on the suffering that we can experience in this life. And obviously this doesn't help an atheist, right? Cause they think this life is it. But for those of us that have hope of something better 
for God to put conditions in place that are good for our growth, but also to limit the risks, limit the total amount of exposure we have to suffering is a very merciful thing. Okay. And what about the uh, next one? Damage. So damage. All right. So let's imagine we have death, decay, and deprivation, but no damage. So we're we're still going to die, but the only way you can die is from is from decay, right? That you're going to have to finally, finally, age out and pass to decay. All right. Well, maybe that sounds that sounds good. There's no more damage. We can't harm each other anymore. We can't injure ourselves. We can't. Viruses can't kill us. You know, murder doesn't happen. But again, you might have to start asking, what kind of a world would that have to look like? In what way would God bring about a world without damage while still having persons in the soul-making process? He's going to have to intervene in free will. He's going to have to change the laws of physics often. Because think about it, it's not just what, it's both the damage that we would will, but it's also the accidental damage. Right. It's stubbing our toe. It's car accidents. It's, it's all of the just normal things that help us learn. Right. Normally, our you know our pain serves as an, an important educational tool. Watch you watch your kids grow up. Falling down teaches them an awful lot. And if you didn't have that experience, it would again be very difficult to know how to make decisions in your world. If every time I went to punch a wall or or, or something, God made the wall disappear or somehow stopped my fist or something, uh, again, it's a very strange bubble world. And so I think damage is fundamental to the the conditions for soul making. Okay. And we already talked about deprivation a little bit. Anything else you want to say on that? This potentially gives us an explanation for why God would create worlds with tidal waves and earthquakes and uh, viruses and all these things. When we start looking at them, what we find is they all really have a purpose. They're, they're necessary. necessary conditions. Yes. They're, they're, they're an opportunity cost to soul making and they're necessary conditions. Tides happen because we have a moon. Well, the moon is absolutely necessary to life on Earth because it stabilizes the rotational axis for, for Earth, which allows for day and night cycles, which allows for a moderate temperature. Earthquakes happen because of plate tectonics. Well, plate tectonics happen because of what the core of the Earth is like, and it creates a magnetic field around the Earth like the Starship Enterprise's shield and keeps, keeps solar radiation and stellar radiation from annihilating all life. So what we start finding is God has really good reasons. There may even be forced upon him. If I mean that in, in the best sense, in that God looks at it and says, here's the way I can do this. I got to have real stakes for these people. It's like playing poker with funny money. It's mm-hmm. not the same. You got to have real stakes. You got to have limits. Thankfully, he puts limits on what we can lose at the table. But there's real stakes. So we really play and we really learn. And when we put too many chips out there on a bad hand, it's painful. And we learn from that. When we go without, when we see our stack getting short, man, that hurts and it drives us to do better. So there's this design element that I think is really important. The second element is governance. Once he's created a world in which all this stuff can happen, why doesn't he constantly go in and smooth out the rough edges? I forget how many people died in the in that horrible tidal wave tsunami in Southeast Asia a few years back. It was like tens of thousands of people. Well, goodness, why not stop this this one instance? Let's stop that. And I think that's where actually our problem of hiddenness is going to potentially yes. offer us a solution. Right, because hiddenness is where he doesn't intervene. Yep. All right. So let's talk about hiddenness. This is this is uh, an important question that many of us have. 
as far as different solutions that Christians offer for this, particularly for the logical problem, the this idea of non-resistant, non-culpable, non-belief, right? It's, I don't believe in God and it's really genuinely not my fault. Well, some Christians will just say there's no such thing, that everyone that rejects God that, or even that just believes that God doesn't exist is at fault for that. It's uh, rebellion. It's, it's a part of their systematic theology. That's apparently satisfying to some people. <laughs> it's not to me. I, I know too many sincere people that find in moments that they wonder if God's there. I like to think of myself as a sincere person, and I experience this where I wonder if God's real or I wonder if he's present, and I, uh, and I would sure like more evidence. And so I go, go looking for it. That's fine to say, but I don't think it's a com- complete enough answer. We really want not just a defense, but a theodicy. We want an explanation for why God isn't more present. And I would point out one quick point that we've said before, I think, which is, you know, it's easy for God to make sure everyone knows he exists. Um, We've even got some scripture that says, you know, what good would that do? The angels know he exists and, and some of them rebel anyway. So he must be at more than that. His objective is not just for people to believe he exists but there must be some kind of something else that he's after, right? Relationship, uh, the personal development, soul-making, qualifying for a kingdom that we think he's working towards. So let's think about this. If God were to meet all of these desires we have for him to be present, the first point I would make is in the Bible, anytime some, anytime God is forcefully present, people think they're about to die. It's not like they celebrate it. <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> it's intense. They they throw themselves on the ground and just hope they don't dissolve into a puddle in front of the power of this God, of this God. So what would it really be like if God were present in that kind of way to all of us? A burning bush or a vision of his throne room or something like that. It would be absolutely overwhelming. It would be hard to get through your day frankly if it was if it was all the time. But even if it was some of the time Imagine what that does to our actual exercise of morally significant freedom. You know, we've talked a lot about authentic libertarian free will where, where we can make decisions. Well, the whole point of that is to have morally significant free will, where our choices have some kind of moral value. And hopefully what we've started describing is a world in which that occurs because there are stakes and there are costs. Hopefully also what we're, we're starting to see is that one of the conditions of that is some level of hiddenness that God has, some kind of epistemic distance, <laughs> some ability for us to, in the moment, think maybe he's not there. And now what am I going to do? I mean, I think about a lot of the examples of people messing up in the Bible, people sinning. Let's go back to Adam and Eve. They're, God's not standing next to them when they're tempted. He gives them that level of autonomy. When David is standing on his balcony looking at Bathsheba, God doesn't tap him on the shoulder and say, "Uh uh-uh. He has that kind of freedom, at least for the moment, to think that he's on his own. And if you're a parent, you see this with your kids, what do they do when they're really not being watched? So some level of freedom must be necessary for, for us to exercise moral autonomy. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, the more God would intervene in some kind of overwhelming it would be very easy for him to overwhelm us i'll put it that way yeah and even those instances in scripture where god appears to people it's probably just a tiny percentage of who he really is yep he could easily just flood the whole place 
uh, with his presence, and there just would be nothing left, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, there is a, uh, a sense in which we read in Scripture, it says, he says, nobody can see my face and live. Mm-hmm. Whatever that means exactly, I'm not sure, but I, the takeaway is that he's holding back. Yep. And even with that, even actually usually using intermediaries, yep. uh, still people are just puddles on the ground. Uh, I, yep. I think of like the scenario where David's about to sin with Bathsheba and he's got you know a vision of an angel in the corner of the room with his finger waving side to side <laughs> saying, no, no, you do that and I'll electrocute your face <laughs> and, right. and, and maybe some other parts of you too. <laughs> All right, David chooses not to indulge his lust with Bathsheba, but that, uh, as you said before, that decision is now meaningless. It's cheapened. Yeah. Because it's yeah. not even a decision, it was coerced. Yep. So the more visibleness, the more yeah. visibility uh, yeah. God has in, in any particular situation, the less moral value a temptation to sin can possibly have, I guess. Yeah, I would say this. God could certainly have our compliance. Yeah. He, can be, he can have our compliance anytime he wants it, just by a thought. But to have our obedience and love... That requires us, and he's got to give us the room to give it to him. (laughs) If God is always constantly present and doesn't give us the room to come to him, yeah, that's just compliance. That's slavery, right? God could have that. He could have a creation full of perfectly compliant automatons (laughs) or slaves, depending on which way you want to look at it. But I just am astonished that God has the moral character, the strength, to allow um, that kind of space because I have a four-year-old, so all, all my stuff is parenting right now. But as a parent, when you give them that space and they choose wrong, boy, it hurts. And it yeah. requires us to have the strength to recognize they need it. And then we need to keep giving them the right combination and the right amounts of instruction and freedom. Yeah. And I think God is constantly balancing that as a perfect loving father. Yeah, it's a really good analogy of parenting because you have some of these smother type helicopter parents that are always circling around their kids, even once the kids are like teenagers and sure. the parents are structuring all their kids' free time and extracurriculars and insisting on driving the kid everywhere, even though the bus is fine, uh, <laughs> gets them there and whatnot. You know, no, I, I want to drive the kid. I, you know, and, and all this kind of thing that the, the kids that come out of that, they struggle in areas of life because they don't take risks because they've never yep. been messing around on a playground. And one kid says, you know, I, I bet you uh, you won't jump off there. And then he jumps off <laughs> and he survives. Whoa. And then another kid says, well, I could jump off higher, you know, and, uh, you know, this kind of thing that, that de- develops the brain to be able to uh, later on calculate risk well you can only calculate risk if you have experience with it you know what's the difference between something that'll work out and something that's just dumb and you know the physical example is an easy one then you have the other kind of parent that's just like not involved doesn't is absent and you know that kid's got all kinds of problems right so it's really uh instructive i think this analogy you bring up that uh god's working with some sort of middle ground here you know he's got his signature on the cell, uh, or so says Stephen Myers, right? And the, the DNA and everything, you know, it's, it's, it's an indicator of uh, God's design. You know, he's got beautiful sunsets and, uh, you know, there's a lot of indication of beauty 
and um, you know, yeah, we have perfectly fine perfect fine tuning. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, there's a, and then there's a lot of logical stuff that you can work with to sort of infer God's existence. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't need to go into the ontological argument, which is all yeah. kinds of fun. But uh, <laughs> you know, my, my point is, it's not like there's nothing. Right. In We're not on our revelation. Own. You know, there, right. there, there, there's actually quite a lot in in the general revelation, and then even if you don't personally experience some sort of like special revelation, there are enough people throughout time, you know, notably as recorded in scripture, but like people have like an uncle or they have, you know, somebody they know who had this experience. You know, I know a guy that got healed from brain cancer, you know, decades ago. And, you know, there, there are, if you read like Eric Metaxas' uh, book on miracles, there are enough accounts, even in our present day, so as to make plausible God's intervention to a restrained degree. You, re- you do really have a good analogy there with the parenting. I, I, don't, I haven't really thought about it in, in, these exact, in, in the context of the hiddenness question before. So uh, I mean, thanks for that. One other, one other analogy. I mean, we've all seen the wealthy, powerful 65-year-old man with the young, beautiful 25-year-old woman. And we all go, eek right? This seems wrong. There's a yuck factor. Nice that you brought your daughter along here. And yeah. You're not trying yeah. to flatter. You're just like, right. <laughs> oh, no, that's my wife. Well, uh... <laughs> and, <laughs> and our moral outrage is because we see that he's used, he's overpowered her. He's used his, his wealth and his position to overwhelm her in exactly the kind of way that, mm. that we would find ob- objectionable if God did that. We want authentic love between these two people. And look, we always assume that it's that. Maybe it's authentic love, right? Between they, they just have to be separated by 40 years of birth. Perhaps that's what it is. But we often assume that's exactly what's happening, that right. she's being overwhelmed. And so we have intuitions about this, uh, you know, moral intuitions. And it's very plausible that that's what God's doing. He strikes a perfect balance between revealing too much, between overwhelming us, with leaving us too alone, right? He, he gives us enough instruction, enough revelation, but also gives us freedom, and he balances that perfectly. I think if, if you're into perfect being theology, I think that's the way we should approach the problem of hiddenness, not to, not to blame each individual person as they're experiencing that, but to say that, again, it's a necessary criteria. It's that God is, in some sense, his hand is forced by reason. He can't draw square circles, make married bachelors, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. He can't make morally perfected persons or morally refined persons without remaining to some degree hidden. I think. Have, have you, uh, out of curiosity, have you read Hugo Grotius at all? You, you yeah, with, with his moral governance theory. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he, I love he's that. Into this stuff, and he, um, yep. his whole atonement approach was on the basis of like, you know, the big picture of yep. like what that would do for the world over time. And, uh, you know, it seems like that's really the angle here that you've taken is like addressing these questions of evil, suffering and hiddenness from the perspective of sort of like universal policy. Yep. Like what sort of universal policies did God instantiate in the beginning and how, how does he carry out his governance? Those are the two you yep. know, focuses you've had here. And what I like about your approach here is that it really kind of shifts our focus from the myopic, very nearsighted, like, this is my crisis, and unless you answer this one particular, 
I'm giving up everything, which is kind of a immature. I mean, it's understandable. You know, nobody can doubt the pain that so many of us endure, but it is kind of a small perspective compared to the way you're looking at it. It's like, all right, so let's say you want to get rid of hurricanes. Yep. How are you going to do that? All right, yep. well, you've got the low pressure, the high pressure. You've got this stuff called air that obeys fluid dynamics in this particular way. Let's say we get rid of hurricanes. Well, then we also have to get rid of, I don't know, whatever else, you know, the gentle breeze on a nice fall right. day you that allows or, or maybe even a heavy breeze that allows uh, trees and plants to pollinate that don't have insects to do that. You know, like, okay, so now we lose all the forests or something. I, I, I'm just making this up. But, like, my yeah. point is, you know, this, this approach is really, really fresh for a lot of us on yeah. these questions. It's in direct contrast, I would argue, to what had been the dominant reformed approach, which is this meticulous providence of God, where every last thing is either his will or he's everything is, is God getting exactly what he wants. The problem is if God gets everything that he wants all the time, then it means every horrible thing is exactly the thing that he wants. If, if on the other hand, we can say what God wants is this outcome and he's working his genius design with exactly the right inputs, the exactly the right settings, if you will, so that it's going to lead to that, mm -hmm. all of a sudden he becomes a just ruler and not a micromanager. He becomes a brilliant designer. You know, we know when you make an airplane, it can either carry a lot of people or it can be pretty fast and can't really do both. You got to choose, right? And so God designs the universe to do what he wants, what his, his objectives to get him there. I think if we look at it that way, people look up policy theodicy, if you're Googling it, folks, mm -hmm. it's going to often be tied with open theism. There's kind of this constellation of ideas that seem to work together. Some people will totally reject it as, as somehow uh, defaming God's power or his glory or something. But I think on the, on the contrary, it shows that he is strong in a way that many people like think about the strength it takes to put this in motion, knowing what kinds of things are going to happen, not the specific thing that's going to happen someday to Brandon when he has a terrible accident, but that that kind of thing will happen. And he knows that it's the only way to achieve his ends is to create a world like that. And so he takes on the suffering with us, right? Because he's watching and experiencing and, and chooses how much to be involved based on our best interests. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Very, very good. Well, I, one last question before we wrap things up here. Uh, how do you see the fall uh, playing into this whole scheme? Because you haven't really mentioned it much. Um, and a lot of us really just like throw everything on the fall and be like, hey, it's the fall, man. Like we don't need to really answer this because like it's our fault or whatever. But obviously God does determine the uh, parameters of the fall, like how far we fall uh, and, and all that. So I don't think a lot of us really think about that. But how would you integrate the fall into your perspective? So I've avoided it to some degree just because it is such a core idea for so many people. And it gets wrapped up in your ideas of, of creation, you know, young earth, old earth, evolutionary, like what God's means are, are Adam and Eve historical persons? Is it allegorical? All these kinds of things. So I to some degree avoided it, but I would just, I would just say this, if you're going to say 
that the world after the fall is somehow outside of God's control or somehow like not what he wants. I don't understand why you would say that. (laughs) I don't understand what justification you'd have for that. I think we have to say he's still sovereign and that he's reacted to the fall and he's put the appropriate conditions in place so that post fall, his objectives are still achievable. I mean, if Adam and Eve had constantly and only chosen good using their authentic moral autonomy (laughs) that he gave them, uh, he doesn't have to introduce death. He doesn't have to introduce some of these other things, but how likely do we think based on our experience of growing and being people that that's the way it's going to work without first going through a very intense kind of soul making experience. So whatever your view on the fall, I think we have to make sure we don't eliminate God's uh, wise design from the way the world is after right. it. Right. Cause I mean, in a sense, God designs the fall as well. Sure. Yeah. Yep. He decides the parameters of the fall. What we get in scripture is very, very brief. You know, it's just like talks about labor pain and like work and you know, maybe like one or two other things, but it's not it's not spelling out all the stuff you just have been talking about here. But what you're saying is these well, just to mention the four D's, right? Mm-hmm. Death, decay, deprivation, and damage, these four, uh, and maybe we could add some others into that, mm-hmm. are in a sense, necessary conditions for there to be a way out from the fallen state of the world in the age to come when redemption and consummation come together to give us the world that God originally started with, restored again. And so I think a lot of us think of, okay, well, the fall basically passes the buck from God to humanity. There is a sense in which that's appropriate because we should own consequences as a species yep, for what we do, right? But uh, it, it, I think maybe it passes it too much to uh, then say, oh, well, God has nothing to do with... Well, look, no, he set up the system, <laughs> okay? <laughs> like, Yeah, we've had Christians in history that actually argued that other view. Like, I think people need to be careful. You don't want to end up being accidentally a Gnostic heretic like in the second and third centuries that said, oh, no, 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 the creator was this evil God that the Jews worshiped our gods, this higher God, and the world that we have, that higher God's trying to rescue us from the stupid, the stupid middleman creator, like yeah. platonic logos theory about, you know, this middleman, this demiurge that created, it got adopted by some Christians to, and they turned the story of Genesis on its head mm-hmm. saying that wisdom, that God, the, the, the all good God is the snake trying to free Adam and Eve from this horrible creation that the stupid, you know, middleman creator made. We, mm. we need to be careful. We need to allow God to remain sovereign before, during, and after the fall mm. and have him be a loving father the whole way through who knows what's best for his children. I, it's so uh, refreshing and somewhat ironic to hear an open theist use the S word like that. Uh, but it's <laughs> <laughs> Well, sovereignty, right? There's what I think is a very lame kind of sovereignty where you're a micromanaging control freak. And then there's a brilliant kind of sovereignty that a great ruler exercises that hopefully our Messiah will. It's smart and loving and it knows what's going on and can make great policies that benefit all and don't prejudicially benefit some over others. And it makes even, and I'm, I'm not a universalist, but 
you know, for the person that, that actually found themselves not believing in God for whatever reason, you don't think God has a plan, has an ability to, to work with that person somehow? I think we need to be very careful in our systematic theologies not to... The irony of the Reformed people that criticize open theists for, quote, putting God in a box, for making him small and, and like making him fit our logic, when that's exactly the kind of claim yep. that, the, that the determinists are making is to say this is the only way God could be. Yeah. And you got to understand Aquinas's five ways or whatever it is, or four ways, however many ways he had. It's terribly difficult. Whereas this is easy. We can relate to a parent who gives their child the right environment to grow. A good parent gives the right kind of governance with instruction and freedom. And I think that's how we should think about God. And when we come to a funeral, and by the way, I don't know if you want to do this, but I could maybe I could close out by reading some of that thing. But Maybe you could just talk about your dad a little bit and, you know, how this approach helps you process that. Sure. So here's how it helps me personally in my own little life, which I will immediately say that there are so many people that have gone through so much more suffering and I am immensely fortunate to have lived the life that I have. But my little tragedy was my father at age 58 went down from a pulmonary embolism. It's just a blood clot that prevents the blood from circulating from your lungs. And so you die from a lack of blood oxygen. And it happened in a moment, uh, within minutes. He was up and around and fine. And the clot broke loose from his leg, as we understand from the medical professionals, and lodged. And within minutes, he was gone. And this is a man who, for me, had served God his whole life. He'd been a pastor for decades someone that I, I very, very much respected as an example of, of being an obedient servant to God. And all of a sudden I was face to face with the idea that God does not, we are not in the hands of the gods, the way the pagans think they are, right? Where if we give God what he wants, he'll give us what we want. Mm -hmm. And so then I had to ask myself, under what conditions was it right for God to do this? Is this what we would see from a good loving God? that this kind of thing can happen and this is how someone's life ends and everyone around suffers. He suffers during death and missing out on things. Meanwhile, he has a wife who's going to live, you know, the rest of her life mourning him and without him, a grandson that'll ne that was about to be born a few months after he died that'll never meet him. H how is this okay? How how is God all right with it, with this? Um or is this evidence that there is no God? He's not superintending this universe and didn't design it. And so that's what put me on my search. And when you look at it from the perspective that we've just outlined, it makes total sense. If God stepped in and like picked my dad up, removed that injury from him, we would all look at each other like what in the world just happened? And any epistemic distance that might have been there would be gone. I would have 100% certainty that God is alive in the world, active and controlling things. And then that might sound great, but then what happens when someone else does die? What about my brother who has some kind of ailment and God lets him die? All of a sudden now God is being this respecter of persons who's, who's helping one over the other. Whereas we can look at this and say, no, 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 he's following policies that are going to bring about the best for all. And so while I'm not opposed to God intervening in the world, I'm sure that he does. He, he certainly has in the past, and maybe he still does heal and, and save people today from the four Ds that we talk about. Even if he doesn't, and even in the cases where he doesn't, 
we see why we have good reason to understand why he would, he would allow the universe that he created to play out in the way that he designed it, because ultimately it's going to lead to our soul making. And ultimately it leads to a world that doesn't have the same design criteria where um, we have this hope of a coming kingdom. Yeah. That's a tough one. It's a tough one, but uh, you know, it's, it really is important for us to, to think it through. I think we're pretty much out of time for today, but um, is there anything you would like to say by way of conclusion that we haven't gotten to? I would just encourage people, if the solutions that I'm offering that I find satisfying aren't satisfying to you, that's okay. Go look into it for yourself. Come to your own conclusions. If you haven't heard a bunch of these terms, it doesn't take that long, a book or two, and you'll be up to speed. And I hope we'll all be in a better position to offer comfort to those that are, that are suffering, whether it's personally or from loss that, you know, at the next funeral, you don't say something like, well, God wanted him here. You know, he, he wanted to bring him, bring him out of this world to, to the, to the grieving wife. Don't, we won't make those kind of mistakes. Even if that were true, that's not the right thing to say. Um, But, but hopefully we can, we can maybe counsel each other and help each other as we do this. And, I think this describes a world where we get to respond to these opportunities God's giving us. We get to respond to the the risk uh, with courage. We get to respond to deprivation with love. We get to respond to damage with with comforting each other. And we can know that death is is limiting our our suffering and that there's something more that we that we hope for. So hopefully this gives us a grounds to live a courageous Christian life and finish the race. Yeah. What, what is that phrase you use about sharp objects and how does that <laughs> yeah, go? God created, yeah. God created a world full of sharp objects and soft people. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you're, so you're, you're giving an account for why that is. Yeah. How do you explain God putting people with nerve endings in a world full of objects that are going to stimulate them and cause them right, pain. Right, right, right. Yeah. So you're giving an account for that. Yeah. Yeah. I, lo- I, I like that phrase. It's, it helpfully gets to the heart of the problem, but uh, well, thanks so much for taking the time out today, Brandon, and uh, talking with me today. Man, it's been my pleasure. Thanks very, very much for having me. Well, that's it for this interview. If you have any questions or thoughts, comments about this episode, episode 363, Why God Allows Suffering, part two, please come on to restitudio.org and find this episode 363 and leave your comment there. It would just be so great to hear from you. Also just wanted to mention that we have a new voice messaging service at Restitudio called SpeakPipe, and you can take a look at that in the show notes for this episode under links. Uh, The first link is leave a voice message, and that will allow you to record on your phone or uh, at your computer if you have a microphone. If you do that, you may even get to hear your voice on an upcoming episode. So take a look at that. A number of you have been writing in on the last episode, and it's exciting to see the engagement there. Brandon Duke, in fact, himself wrote in on the last episode saying, thank you, Sean, for the opportunity to participate in a podcast I love. The podcast has contributed to my thinking on this issue as it has on many other issues, and it was a thrill to try to give back. Hopefully some of the framework or references or ideas are helpful to those who hear it. And I also look forward to any critical feedback as I am always refining and seeking a better understanding of God, His design, and His sovereignty. 
As a shameless plug, Duke continues, you can go to truthborn.org, that's his personal website, and hear another presentation I gave recently on this same subject to a Christian virtual fellowship. Maybe it will supplement the conversation with Sean. And uh, so thanks for writing in, Brandon. I will be sure to include that in the show notes of this episode as well. But in fact, we have received some critical feedback from no less than one of our regular guests here at Restitutio, Jerry Weirwell, who uh, does not buy, he's not buying soul-making as a valid theodicy. So uh, we're hoping to arrange a conversation between Brandon Duke and Jerry Weirwell on the subject of the soul-making theodicy that Duke has put forward in the last two episodes, and uh, and Weirwell wants to push back. So that'll be an interesting episode. Hopefully we can get that all buttoned up and edited and published for next week. So stay tuned for that. Julio Esteban also wrote in saying, What's wrong with the scriptural view? Ecclesiastes 9, 2, and 11, etc. Humanistic philosophy, especially from Irenaean theodicy, is an assault on the sufficiency of scripture. Well, Julio, that is, uh, that's quite a statement you make there, that philosophy is an assault on scripture. Before I reply, I just wanted to read out those verses you cited there, Julio. Ecclesiastes 9.1 says, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So that's Ecclesiastes 9.2, and then he also referenced Ecclesiastes 9.11, which reads, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Uh, I, I really actually appreciate this verse myself as well, Julio. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for bringing it into the conversation. Ecclesiastes does have important wisdom for us to uh, work into our overall understanding of how the world is and how we can relate to the world and enjoy the world. However, these scriptures, they don't describe why, right? It just says, verse 2 there, Ecclesiastes 9.2, just says, everybody, whether you're good or you're bad, has stuff happen to you. And then verse 11 says that it doesn't even matter if you're faster or stronger or wealthier, you still have to deal with time and chance, right? So this is, the biblical statements here are giving us the what, the sort of like facts of the matter that, yeah, stuff happens in our world and we suffer and, and flukes happen and random events occur and it, our world is suffused with suffering. What 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 Duke is doing and, and what those who are really wrestling at a deeper level on the whole question of suffering and how God can be good and powerful and yet have a world with so much suffering, what he's doing here is answering the question, why? And I, I don't see any biblical evidence that that is an out-of-bounds kind of a question. I believe it is a kind of a question that uh, a child will ask. A believing child will say, why did God let this happen to my friend in school who, who got hit by a car, or my parent who uh, died young of a disease, or 
my neighbor whose house was hit by a tree and then got disabled as a result of it. I mean, these bad things are happening all around us all the time. And it is, I believe, a legitimate question to say, why? Why does God have it this way? And we might not be able to come to a definitive answer on every specific occurrence, but you know what? It's, it's really helpful to think it through. And so I'm, I'm really thankful that Duke is doing this. I'm thankful that Weirwell's going to come on and uh, give us some, some other thoughts on the subject that maybe are a little different. And, uh, you know, I think I might as well just throw in Gregory Boyd, too. His whole spiritual warfare approach would be a whole other kind of angle on this whole question as to why so much bad stuff is happening in our world. I know that for some Christians, and it seems like Julio's coming from this camp himself, the whole idea of philosophy is by its nature evil or atheistic in some way. But but here here's the thing. Philosophy is just thinking things through. That's all, that's all it is, right? It comes from two words, philos and sophia, right, which is uh, love of wisdom, right? And that's, what is that? That's the book of Proverbs. Come on, man. That's, that's Job. That's Ecclesiastes. I mean, if you want to criticize somebody for really going on and on, and really tossing an idea around and, and analyzing it from every angle and then not really giving us a satisfying solution, be mad at Job, really. I mean, that book is, is uh, three rounds of speeches, and you don't really even get a solid answer at the end of it other than Job didn't do anything wrong, and yeah, he still suffered. So what's the deal with that? If that book can be any example to us as Bible-believing people, then we should be able to toss the idea around and wrestle with it and have dialogue, just like in the book of Job, there was dialogue between these different people. And because we live in such a different time where we have the completed canon of Scripture and we have accumulated knowledge in a lot of other fields, most notably psychology, philosophy, natural sciences, we are able to maybe think through these things in a, in a better way than some of our forebearers who maybe can only see one aspect of the situation. So yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, philosophy, philosophizing about evil and suffering. C.S. Lewis did it. Many of the great Christians throughout history have done it, and we're going to continue doing it. And if it, if it offends you, then uh, don't listen to this episode or the next episode. You know, We'll move on to another topic soon enough, but it is something that I think is important, and we're going to continue to explore for a little while. I remember in my own field of church history making a sort of cavalier remark that, you know, what's wrong with the church fathers? It's all, it's all this darn philosophy that infiltrated the church and corrupted the biblical understanding, bringing in the immortality of the soul and the idea of emanations and even the idea of threeness and Neoplatonism, where you have the monad, which begets or produces the second principle, which then produces the third principle. And I was at a conference saying this, and I remember Dale Tuggy, the philosopher himself, uh, made the remark, you know what the problem is? It's not philosophy. And I was just like, w- w- how could you even possibly? Say? And he says, no, it's bad philosophy. The problem is bad philosophy. It's not philosophy in general. It's not thinking things through. It's not having a reasoned account of something. It's doing it in a, in a poor way or assuming Plato's categories and then trying to read those into Scripture. I mean, that's obviously a, a losing proposition, right? Or 
let's let's assume atheism and now let's study the Bible. Well, we're going to have a real problem with miracles, right? And we're going to be hyper skeptical about Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, for example. We're going to have to have a late dating for all the Gospels because we know that that can't happen. We know the future can't be known. We know that miracles are impossible, so, we, so, we, so that's what's going to push us around. And look, that's just bad philosophy once again. So the goal then is to be able to think biblically, to be able to think logically, to be able to think historically about these different issues, and really listen to different points of view, especially ones that we disagree with, so that we can see where our weaknesses are and grow, and not hold our philosophical speculations with a clenched fist, because we could be wrong. And that's okay if we're wrong, because if we're wrong, that means that we've discovered something better. And that's that's all about this process of growth and development and moving ever closer to the mind of God. And so that's so that's the end of my little rant about why I think this subject matters and, and other subjects that maybe aren't considered typical for Christian discussion, but but I, I think they are valuable for us to think about. Well, that's it for this episode. If any of you would like to support Restitutio, you could do that online at restitutio.org. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.